I added value to my team because I didn't fit in with my team. Like I added value to other teams I've been on, to the FFA, like because I thought things that other people didn't think and I was willing to say things that other people wouldn't say. And so I don't, I don't want to change that now. I'm Tim Bickett, a grain and cattle risk management advisor from Worthington, Minnesota. And you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we sit down with recently retired National FFA Officer Miriam Hoffman. This is a rare treat. Most of the time, people get done with an organization like FFA, and they become robotic. They only want to talk about exactly what happened in the ways that a PR person might want them to, but not this conversation with Miriam. We actually have a really robust conversation about what it is to see this huge storied organization that's been around for over 150 years from the inside, from the person that was selected to stand in front of tens of thousands of her fellow FFA students and give them a talk that they would want to hear and might find value in. She also represented them and voted on committee meetings and offered advice and guidance to the uh, adults that are leading this FFA organization. This is a wide-ranging conversation, and even if you have nothing to do with agriculture, don't really care what uh, high school students are up to, you will find the way that Miriam thinks about and answers questions to be truly unique and a really extraordinary experience. And to give you a little bit of insight and to why this was such an extraordinary conversation between Miriam and I, is when she was considering running for a second time, she actually didn't win the first time she went out for it, she came to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this and I just wanted to get some of your input. And I told her that I thought it was a waste of time to run for this election. I didn't think it was a good idea and I heavily tried to dissuade her from doing it. And yet, she went ahead with running for the election anyway and she won. And it has been extraordinary to hear about her experience, to have conversations, to see the world through her perspective And this is a truly unique experience that you're about to go through. Before we get to that interview, many of you know before the holidays I was doing a bunch of legacy interviews. This is where I sit down with a loved one, and instead of having an interview for publication on the podcast, I keep it private. And this is me talking with one of your loved ones about their family stories, about values that are important to them, and about lessons they learned along the way. Over the Christmas holiday, I heard back from a lot of people that purchased those saying, This was a pivotal moment in my life, a core memory, one where when I watched this with my parents and I heard their stories, things they'd never told me, things I'd never asked, and you brought up things that I never probably could bring up, that it actually changed our relationship with each other for the better. And it was a most memorable night that I'll carry with me for many years and will likely listen and watch these again and again. So if you would like me to do a legacy interview with a loved one so you can have this treasured memory, go to store.articulate.ventures where you can hire me either to do it over Zoom, which is what I did over the holiday season, or if you live in St. Louis, we can always do it in person. I'm looking forward to interviewing one of your loved ones. This is a cherished and deeply fulfilling experience for me as it has been for the many people that have purchased this. So sign up today at store.articulate.ventures to have me interview one of your loved ones with our legacy interviews. Now, without further ado, we're going to go to my interview with former FFA national officer, Miriam Hoffman. Miriam Hoffman, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. So you uh, just got done with your national FFA officer role. Uh, 
you know, what is it like to stand on the stage in front of tens of thousands of screaming kids and give a uh, farewell address about what you've learned over the last year? It's one of the most surreal feelings that I've ever had in my life. Um, and especially because seven years prior to that, um, I, I was one of those. I wasn't a screaming kid. I was a very, very quiet kid um, sitting like way up in the nosebleeds at National FFA Convention. And I was watching the national officer on the stage give a speech. Um, and that, that was the first moment when I realized that maybe I actually belonged in the FFA. Um, so to be able to be that person giving the speech from the stage and and to hopefully give that same feeling to other people in the audience was was pretty cool but it was also crazy because when you're on the stage like you don't you can't conceptualize how many people are listening to you like i i could see most of the people on the floor so like maybe a couple thousand but like there's there was a lot more people there than i could even conceptualize being there which was kind of good because then i didn't think about it as much um but it was it was a privilege without a doubt yeah i walked in and it's at this lucas oil you know, stadium. So this is where the Colts play. And I yeah. really didn't know what to expect. I'd been to an FFA conference before, but I'd only been, you know, where the businesses, like the corporate supporters are, where they're like handing out trinkets and things to kids and saying like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd never been to the actual convention. And you walk in there and it is like going to a rock concert. I mean, it is like laser light show, giant jumbotron where they're like, and now welcome the national FFA officers to the stage. And it's like all this pomp and circumstance and kids are going wild. And I was like, Miriam is going to speak here. This was like <laughs> an audience probably fivefold larger than anything I'd ever spoken to. And I was like, holy jeez, oh, really? this is big. Yeah, I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah, no, it was it was really cool. And it was particularly energetic this year um, because it had been two years since we had an in-person convention. And so it, it added stress to my teammates and I and to all of National FFA staff, like coming back in person again. Um, but it was really, really cool because so many people there hadn't been to a convention before. And so there was added energy in that. And we ended up in, in May, we decided to have an in-person convention and we predicted 35,000 people would attend. Um, and normally we'd have 65, 70,000. And we ended up with 60,000 by, by the end of convention. And so there was, there was a lot more people than we expected. And there was just so much energy in the room. And, and one of the really cool things that I love so much about convention was, and, and about FFA in general is that like, we have, we have these like, shared experiences that that we developed together and that we have these traditions of we always say the same opening ceremonies like each officer has their part um, and then there's this one part at the very beginning of every session that we we all stand up together and we say like why we're here as FFA members to practice brotherhood to honor agricultural opportunities and the very opening session there was about I think 20 25,000 people in the stadium at that point and I was like super nervous um, <clears throat> just walking out from backstage because you could hear the roar of everyone on the other side um, of, of the backstage curtain. But we got out there and, and we started speaking our parts and, and a lot of those nerves faded away. But when we got to that part where everyone in the stadium stood up and said those words together, that was like the, the final thing that I, it was it was hard to believe that we were having an in-person convention after so long of a virtual events. But that was when I mean, I teared up like I couldn't even finish saying the words because I saw all of these people in in the place where I found I mean, I found myself in the FFA and like everyone's wearing the same jacket and like to find a place with so much unity when the rest of the world feels like it can't find unity was really, really powerful. So I, you know, knew the FFA kids when I was growing up, like they would be around, but it was just something they did and I didn't. Um, 
But how do you describe the FFA to people that weren't around at a school that had ag involvement? Like, what is the FFA? It's it's honestly really hard to describe because there's the you know the technical description that it's a intracurricular agricultural student leadership organization, um, and so we we are chartered federally through Congress, and you know we get federal funding for career and technical education, and you have to be involved in an agriculture class in your high school to be a part of it. But then there's there's the pieces outside of it. Um, but I think the more I guess the the ethos of the FFA is that it's a place to belong and and to grow and to be challenged by other people. And so we we deliver personal growth and leadership and, and career success lessons through through the industry of agriculture. So we have like this tangible thing that we get to see, like here's here's what it looks like to live out leadership in an agricultural company, or here's what it looks like to, you know, find success as a farmer, or here's what it's what it looks like to do research in agriculture. But we're, we're delivering transferable skills through all of those things. And so many students who get involved in agriculture classes in high school just end up there on accident. Their guidance counselor just put them in there because it was a – Yeah, I mean I think for, a, for like, the, like the tangible thing, if you're thinking like, hey, you're a high school student, how, what is FFA? Well, it's like you know, there's chorus and there's speech team and there's football and there's these other things. Mm-hmm. And FFA is like that in the fact that like they're an after-school group. But yet they're different because it's 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 like um, you know I remember those kids would bring like their sheep in and do like a sheep shearing thing or they would bring in like their corn projects or whatever. So it was like um, a it was like a tech school slash competition slash like the most bubbly ag kids were involved in it. It was like a hard thing to yeah. Well, because it, it I think it and I mean obviously like I'm, I'm biased because I loved it and I spent seven years in it. Um, but I mean, you talk to, to most FFA students and they will tell you that like it, it brings in the best of most of those worlds. Um, and so I think one of the best ways to to illustrate that is that like you ask, you know, anyone who's several decades into their career now or um, even people that are that are quite, quite far away from their time in FFA and you ask them like what what was the most meaningful thing about high school for them or like who was their most influential teacher? Um, they will almost without fail say their ag teacher. And many of those people say, like, my ag teacher was like my dad or my ag teacher was like a mom to me um, because there is just so much. I think that's part of it is because there's a, a relationship usually with a good ag teacher that it means a lot more than if you're just in a club. You know, people don't usually talk about their band teacher in the way that people talk oh, about their I ag teachers. Oh, I don't teachers. know. Well, some people band? might. Yeah. I wasn't band. Okay. Um, and, and I love my band teacher too. Um, but I think some of it is because you, if you're involved in FFA, you spend so much time with that person. Um, and I think one of the other things that differentiates FFA, or it's not necessarily entirely different about FFA, but there's so much more of it, um, is those like peer-to-peer connections. And we talk about we have a peer-to-peer leadership model. Like that's why we have state officers. That's why we have national officers is so that it's not just ag teachers teaching students, but it's that, you know, we, we see ourselves in the state officers who come and do work. Yeah, so explain and, that whole system, right? So like there's in, in the FFA, like just in your school chapter, you have a president and all these like secretary roles and it's very like formalized. Mm -hmm. And then that extends to the, is it, is the next level state? Like how does this go? It depends on the state. Okay. Um, So in, in the state of Illinois where I was, I was a state officer, we have sections that have section officer teams as well. So there's usually anywhere from 10 to 20 schools, FFA chapters in a section. Um, So that's normally, you don't, you don't have to have been a section officer or section president to be a state officer, but 
for all practical purposes you do because um, you, you develop so many more connections. So yeah, then there's section office um, and then, then there's state office. And so some states do it differently, but in Illinois, the state officers take a gap year from college. Um, they're usually either just graduated from high school or they have one year of college already. Um, and then national officers, again, you don't have to have been a state officer, but it's very, very rare that someone who wasn't a state officer will get elected. And so how do you become a state officer? So you have to earn your state degree, um, which is basically a set. There's a discovery degree after your first year in FFA that, you know, you have to learn the FFA creed and you have to go to X number of events. Um, And then there's a chapter degree, which is usually you get it when you're a sophomore or junior. And then your state degree you can get as early as your junior year. A lot of people don't get it till their senior year. Um, And that, again, it's it's also based on how much – work time or how much money you've earned from what we call supervised agricultural experiences. So ideally every student in FFA has one of those. That's not quite where we're at right now, but that's the target. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that we do outside of the classroom, um, in FFA. So students like me who grew up on a farm, like I just keep records on my cattle. Um, and that, that was my SAE. Um, but for other students, if they work at a restaurant, they can keep records on that. And that's, I mean, there's different categories for them, but anything that, anything that you can connect to agriculture in, even in a very small way, um, usually counts. You have to make a certain number, uh, amount of money or work a certain number of hours, um, collectively in order to earn your state degree. Um, and then in Illinois, again, every state has a different process for it. And it's super interesting learning about how different states do the election process, but in Illinois, you go through a day-long interview process, and that's scored. And so there's some some FFA members, some high school students um, who are scoring, as well as people in industry, ag teachers, past state officers. Um, and so the, the top 10 scores. And wait, them. what are you doing in this? You're like, they give you a prepared speech? They um, give you, what yeah, is there's, it? there's a whole set. So there's a prepared speech. Um, there's a facilitation round. So you present like 15 minutes of a workshop. Um, there's a general interview. There's a group activity which is always really interesting because you work with the people. You're jumping through these so fast. So the general interview, like this is, is it like you and I are talking right here? Um, It's usually questions like, why do you want to run for state office? Like, what's your favorite FFA memory? Like, just kind of generic questions like that. Um, Yeah, so then the group activity, um, you're, you're put in a group of five to seven of your, your fellow candidates and you're tasked with something that state officers would have to do together. Um, and the objective, they don't really care if you get the activity done, like if you complete the task, but they care about how you work together. And then the, at the end of it, then they ask you questions about it when like you're all still together in a group and they'll ask you, how is it like to work together? Um, which is that, that was probably my least favorite part of, of that day. Um, because it's uncomfortable to answer. Yeah, and so like, what group. is the mind? What's going on in the mind of the person being judged? Right? Are you like, I want to belittle my the other people, but do it in a way that everybody smiles, or like, how how does this work? It depends on what kind of candidate you are, um, but the most successful candidates focus on on just showing who they are, and not like like my job is not to beat the person next to me. It's to illustrate why I would be a good officer and what I would do if I were to be elected. And that that was something that I didn't really realize until the second year I ran for national office. Like I didn't I didn't really know that when I ran for state office. So you won at state office. You were a state officer. Yes. Then you get done. You graduate high school. You were already. I was out, already graduated. You were already graduated. Mm-hmm. Then you go and you run for national FFA officer. And is that the same sort of process? Um. To some degree. So the state officer selection process, like that interview, that whole day of interviews with all the different group activity, the speech, all those things, um, 
that selects the top 10 that then go on to state convention with about 5,000 people. Um, and there's delegates, there's two delegates from each chapter that come and they vote based on speeches that you give on stage. And it's just by popular vote, like runoff style, um, and they elect five officers. Um, so then you go to the national process and it's, it's just an interview process, but instead of having 500 delegates listen to you, um, there's nine peers Usually they're, they don't have to be graduated from high school, but they have to still be FFA members within that eligibility because you you're eligible to be an FFA member until you're 21. Um, so those, those nine students listen to the, usually about 40 candidates, um, listen to all those interviews, and they create a slate that then the delegates at national convention technically vote on it to approve it, but it's ceremonial. Like they, they never downvote the slate. So it's, sim it's similar to the, the first segment of the Illinois state officer selection process, but it's way more intense. So you're going through this process and for a while there, you're like winning, right? You're like, hey, I'm section. Hey, now I'm state. Now I'm going to go for national where you're competing. And for people that aren't aware, there are more FFA chapters in the United States than there are Walmarts. And so like that starts to put into perspective just how many kids are involved in this program and how many like you know if you got 60,000 people in a in a uh, in an Indianapolis Colt stadium and one of them is looking down there saying I want to be an officer so are likely many of the other tens of thousands of kids in there so you're going up and competing against other kids that have been successful at the sectional and state and now they want the national level and you don't get it it was it was really really hard to not get elected, but the interesting thing is that I I didn't want to be a national officer until towards the end of my state officer year, uh, because I I knew I, I mean I always thought it would be cool when I was a younger FFA member, and then I got to be a state officer and I realized that FFA isn't this magical world of unicorns that's amazing and everyone's perfect in it, <laughs> and so then I realized okay there's there's a lot of things to deal with at the national level. Um, and I didn't know if I wanted to do that for another year. But when when it came to the decision point where I needed to decide if I would run to be the candidate or not, um, I just I felt this pull like I was just supposed to do it. Um, and it was. It was like the next step. And so then not getting elected was... Were you nervous at the time or did you assume you would get it? Oh, I certainly did not assume that I would get it. I almost never assume that I will get things, um, which is... And, I pretty much always assume that I'm going to lose, <laughs> um, but but I, I perform to the best of my ability, but I assume that that won't be enough, <laughs> which is not a super common strategy, and I'm still not sure if it's healthy or not, but I mean, it's kind of worked, so I don't know, but, but yeah, I mean, when I went through the interview process, though, I did, a lot of people told me I was going to get elected, like, a lot of people that I knew and that, like, knew a lot of national officers, they're like, oh, like, you, you, you have it, like, you're going to get elected, and each interview round, it was a week-long process. Each each time I left the room, I was like, I, I gave everything I had to give. Like, I told the nominating committee what they needed to know. And so I had this conception in my mind that if, like, if, if I tell the committee everything that they need to know about me, and if I score well in all the rounds, then I will get elected. And then I didn't. And so, yeah, af after the process, I had somewhat of that, like, oh, like, why, why didn't I get elected? Because I did everything I was supposed to do. That's why I didn't get elected. And it took me several months, I would say, to realize that more, more people can perform well in the interview process and be genuine in the interview process than will get elected. Like, it's not like if this, then this. Like, it might be, but there's going to be a lot of people 
So when I went, I when I was at the national convention, I got to see the part when the they march the kids up on stage that have been competing, and some of them they already know that they aren't going on, right? And yeah, so there's a cut halfway through, and about half of the candidates continue interviewing the other half, know that they're not going to get elected. Which has got to be devastating, right? Because you're 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 like going up there, and you're like, I can taste. What it will be like to be the at the center stage where you are one of the six people and, you know, the spotlights are all on you and then it's just pulled away. Like you, you get you. It's like it's almost like a pun. I, I like I actually asked the people around. I'm like, you sure this is like a good thing? Like they're they're doing this. Did you ever go up on stage and have it pulled? So you had the experience of going up there and not winning. Yes, I, I made the cut. The first year that I ran. So when I when I introduced myself in 2019 at National Convention, I knew that I could be a national officer. Okay. Um, but it is it is very and one of my very best friends didn't make the cut, and that was I did not realize how hard that would be. Like it it like that the night when you find out like everybody gets a letter. It's like this whole dramatic process. Everybody gets a letter, and you open your letter, and like there's a list of all the people who made the cut, and then the other side of the piece of paper is all the people who didn't. And I remember when I opened my letter, I was like, yay, I made the cut. Sweet. This is great. Um, and then I flipped it over and I saw my best friend's name on the other side. And I that broke me in a way that I did not expect it would. Because um, you get – but that's one of the things that I love so much about the process. So, like, I've never been bitter about the fact that I didn't get elected. Like, it was really, really hard. But but you get so close to those people because it's such a unique process. And, and you're all going through it together. And so that when then when I didn't get elected, then like those are the people like whether whether they made the cut or not, like at the end of the election, like it doesn't matter if you made the cut or not, if you didn't get elected, like we all didn't get elected together. And that's how, where is, the how is the election of the officers different than just like a beauty contest, right, where you have both men and women? Right, because like in a lot of ways, a beauty contest is like people standing up and they've got to have their what do you, what do you want to see in the world? I want world peace, that kind of thing. How do you think of it as different? It's really, really hard to be fake and get elected to national office. Okay. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's really hard because there is so much built into the interview process that makes it difficult for shallow people or people who don't know who they are is one of the biggest things. And I, and I did not know who I was the first year that I ran. I thought I did, but I could not ultimately articulate to that committee why they should elect me. Like I could tell them a bunch of things about myself that I learned and that were true, but I, I couldn't I couldn't distill that down to here is the thing that I have to offer to National FFA that no other candidate has. And I think that's what the process is meant to do is to help candidates distill that down and to help the committee who's selecting the officers to see what those things are. And so there's you you have to have a certain amount of depth. So what was the difference between the year that you didn't get elected and then the answers you gave the year that you did get elected? I think a lot of it was because I was forced to see who I was outside of the FFA. Because like you said, so I, I went through all the steps and I, I just kept doing the next thing in FFA. And I was involved in other things in high school and, and in college, but FFA was the main thing. And so, you know, I always felt like like my purpose is to serve people. And FFA was the way to do that. And so then when I didn't have that anymore, when I didn't get elected, I had to figure out, like, who who is Miriam really when she's not wearing the blue corduroy jacket and when she's not surrounded by all these Yeah, people? this thing that you said, hey, I'm a part of this group now. Mm -hmm. I, I really know I belong. And now they told you, yeah. like, yeah, you belong, but you're not. 
you know, really, you know, yeah. you know national FFA officer mm-hmm. belongs. Yeah, yeah. And so there was there was a lot of growth that happened. And because that was the first really big thing that I lost, like the the only other FFA officer position that I lost or that I didn't get elected to the team, like when I ran for state office, I didn't, I was the fourth person to get elected out of five, but like I still got on the team. I didn't care that I wasn't president. I just wanted to be on the team. Um, the only other officer position that I had lost was when I ran for chapter office, like my sophomore year and I didn't get treasurer and I got the next one. Like it, that was the first big loss. And so that taught me a lot in and of itself. And going back to what I was saying earlier that, you know, like it's possible to do everything right and not get the outcome that you wanted. So I learned that. And that, that taught me a lot about my own perspective on, on what it means to set goals and, and to, to set out to achieve something. And, and I've truly, and some people will try to tell me that this isn't true, but I never set a goal to get elected to national office. Like I ran for it. I wanted it, but my goal was never to be elected. It was to bring what I had to offer. Um, and that's what I really started to realize then in that period of six months or so before I, I went through the process of getting selected as the Illinois candidate again. Um, <clears throat> I started to look at, you know, what what do I have to offer to the FFA? Because I, I, I still cared about the FFA. And I loved the process that I, I, like, I was willing to go through it again. And I knew that, like, I can survive not getting elected once. Like, I can survive it again. Um, but it was also harder to choose to run again because after the pandemic happened, FFA programming looked different like we didn't have the big exciting conventions anymore yeah you'd be a national ffa officer over zoom right like and Mm -hmm. so you've got all these responsibilities but you don't get the big spotlight there's no jumbotron there's no like you know all these screaming kids Mm -hmm. yeah but but one of the things that i learned about myself in those few months so i i finished at community college through the covid semester um and then i worked for a startup in in iowa lived alone hung out with people I barely met. Um, and that I, I learned a lot in that too. And that was part of the figuring out who I was like, not just outside of FFA, but outside of my family. Um, and that, that was a big piece of learning, learning what I had to offer then back to the FFA. And then some things happened, you know, in the world and, and in FFA in summer of 2020 that made me realize that I had always had certain feelings about national FFA and and how it was perceived at the local level, um, and and for a while I would just complain about those things, but I had a conversation with with a mentor, where he he told me he's like yeah you can you can choose to not run again because you're tired of all this stuff and you don't want to deal with everything that you don't like about the national organization or you could just go do something about it, and so that's when I really knew that I had something to offer to the FFA and I did not feel entitled to getting elected because of that, but I knew I had something to give that no other candidate would have. And so if I really meant what I said when I said I love the FFA, then I had to run again. I mean, we started to get to know one another right around the time that you were thinking about doing national FFA. And uh, I I don't think I would have been very positive on, on you running. I don't think at all. No, no. I remember it was our first Zoom call when we first talked. And I, I asked you to write me a letter of recommendation. And and you wanted to talk about it first. And you said, why are you wasting your time on FFA? I distinctly <laughs> remember that. <laughs> but that was one of the, that was one of the, that was one of the pivotal moments for me in running for office because I knew, because I still had to convince myself why I was deciding to do that again. Um, and so, and no one else had, no one else had the courage to ask me why why would you do this? Like in that sense. Um, so that I had to come up with a really good defense. Because well, we had seen, at least I had seen this, there was a kid that was from New Mexico who I didn't know anything at all about him, 
but I know that like uh, somebody combed through his social media feed or something um, while he's a national FFA officer, they decide that some of the jokes that he made were unbecoming of an officer and they rallied a group of people around to get him booted off. And the national FFA, from my perspective, did zero to protect him. And so it was like, why would you put yourself in this zone where you have all of the uh, bullseye on your back from being in corporate America, right? This like giant stage, which I had experienced myself and yet like expose yourself to people wanting to see you fail. Like what, what is the benefit here? And, and in particular, if the group isn't going to back you up. And so my perspective on this was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't see it here. And I mean, I was definitely open. You know, I, I wrote, you know, your, your letter. So like, I, I'm definitely open to having my mind change, but I remember being like, are you sure this is a good idea? Yes. And, and I decided that risk was worth it because I, I didn't have that much to lose, I would say. Um, and yeah, that, that whole situation, that was ultimately the thing that I had already submitted my intent to run again for the Illinois candidacy. Um, and, and the day that, that that officer got removed, um, cause I, I was friends with him. That was, that was a really hard day for me. And that was the day that I, I almost pulled my application then. Cause I was like, I don't, I just don't want to deal with it. Um, but that was also the, also the day where I realized that I had a really, really deep reason to run. And it's because, and there's, there's so much about that situation that it's, it's really complex and nuanced, but ultimately that's, that is why I decided to run again is because things like that are complex on the surface, at least, they weren't being treated as such. It was like, this bad person, <laughs> good people will get him removed. It's like, this is not how the world works. Like, the the line between good and evil is not between groups of people. It's within each person, right? And so to see to see that not being recognized was really hard for me. And and I wanted – I just wanted to show up and tell the nominating committee that, like, here's here's what I would like to do for FFA. And if, if they didn't like that, cool, like whatever, they don't have to elect me. That's fine. I'm fine without the FFA. Um, but, but I'm really, I'm really, really glad that, that I did get elected because I also realized that I had a very low resolution idea of what was happening at National FFA. And I just grouped, I just thought of like National FFA as this one entity. And then I got there and I realized like, no, National FFA, other than the fact that it's made up of the over 700,000 student members, like in in the national organization, as far as the staff goes, like there's individual people and there are individual departments and they are not all the same and they're not all on the same page and they're not, they, they did not all have the opinions that I thought that they did. And I realized that there were people who fought for the things that I wanted to fight for, but they didn't necessarily have the freedom to say that. I mean, I, so Oftentimes, uh, people will reach out to me, particularly young people. Like when I was director of millennial engagement, you end up having a podcast, you're in agriculture, you have young people that'll reach out and they say, Hey, I'd really like some advice. And what they actually want is for you to knock down some barrier for them. They're like, ha, ah, I think if I do this, I'll ask for advice and then it'll get easier. But I am never easy on people that come for advice. So like, I'll usually be like, here, read these two books. And let me know what you think of them. And if they take the time to read those two books, then likely they're they're willing. There's somebody that's worthy of of interacting with. And for you, I started being like, oh well, if you're going to do this, you really ought to talk to, you know, these people. And every person I sent you towards was definitely not a. They weren't anti FFA, but they would hold no punches back. And you went and talked to 
people that I think are like avant-garde, like on the edge of science and farming. And uh, like they would call me up and say they really enjoyed the conversations with you. So once we went through that process and you were still like, yeah, I think I want to do this. I was like, all right, well, this will be cool. Let's see where this goes. <laughs> yeah. No, it was it was really cool to to bring that perspective because the kind of training that I had the second year that I ran for national office, and I won't even say training, the the kind of preparation that I put myself through the second year was very different. The first year, I focused a lot on just the mechanics of understanding the process because, like, there's there's a whole scoring system that isn't isn't super transparent, and that's good because it used to be really transparent, and people would just learn how to be the fake robot to get the points. Um, and that's part of why it's it's even harder now to get elected if you're fake. Um, but I, I just went through and I just learned, like, okay, here's how I answer interview questions to get the most points. But the second year, I just had a lot of conversations with people. And and I did the thing where I would take an idea that I had and I would just, like, it, it was, like, throwing it at the wall and, like, seeing what sticks. But it was seeing how that idea would land with different people. And so that's what was, part of what was so valuable about you sending me to all those people is that I, I got different perspectives about my ideas. And once I got an idea to the point that everyone – saw the same thing that I was trying to say, I knew like, okay, this, this is it. This is what I need to do. And I struggled for a long time. And even this year, this is something I worked on a lot. I, I really struggled to articulate my ideas concisely. It's like, I have a lot of thoughts, but they're really, really hard for me to explain to people in a way that makes sense. And so going through just having a lot of conversations, like I, I did some practice interviews. It was like, here's 10 minutes, four questions, whatever. But I didn't do a lot of that the second year because I already knew how to interview, but I needed to know who I was and what I had to offer to then fill in the framework of how to interview. Yeah, I mean, you were talking to some of the most disagreeable people, people that are never, you know, the Lyle Benjamins, the, the um, uh, let's think who, Kate Crosby, like these are people that uh, super nice, but at the end of the day, if they don't see your idea, they don't agree with it, they're not going to be like, oh, okay, that's an, hey, that sounds fine. They're going to tell you. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that as if, if the process is trying to go for uh, uniqueness and authenticity, there is no other way to prepare for something like that other than to talk to people that don't, won't naturally agree with you. They won't just sit there and smile and nod. Yes. And as someone who is really high in agreeableness, like that was difficult for me, but it was also really valuable. I was just talking to somebody the other day about how like I have I've trained myself to ask for feedback like constantly and like I implement it, but that does not come naturally to me. I'm naturally very, very defensive when people call out things about me that could be better or that don't make sense. Like internally, like I hate that, but you expose yourself to a lot of negative <laughs> feedback. Well, because, because I think, I mean, it's, I, I have a lot of fights in my head, like the internal voices. Um, and one of those is between the desire to, to, for, for people to, to just like me the way that I am and, and to be – I like to be good at things as soon as I do them. Like I don't like things where there's like a really long, slow learning curve. Like if it's like really steep and it like I'm really, really bad at something and then I'm like suddenly really good at it, like that's okay. But if it takes me a really, really long time to get halfway decent at something, like I don't want to do that thing. Like playing games, like sports, like did not play sports growing up. I hate it now because like everyone else is just naturally good at it because they like did it in high school. I'm like, no, like somebody throws a ball at me and I just duck. Um, so like it, it, there's, there's that, that element of me that just wants to be good at everything that I do. And I want to be good at it right away. Um, but then there's the other side of me that knows that I'm never going to actually be perfect at anything. 
And the only way to get close to that is to seek out feedback. And that side is what has won in the last few years. And I think that's that's so much of, of how I got elected, elected the second year. Um, and even the first year, like I I had one one training um, interview that I did. I just sat down at a boardroom table with some relatively high level people in, in an agribusiness. And they just went around the table and they just would ask me a question and I'd answer it. And then they would sit there for like five minutes and they'd pick apart everything that I said that they didn't like that I said uh, for an hour or two. And I didn't cry until I walked out of the building, <laughs> but that was really, really hard. But I've found so much value in that. And it's so much more fulfilling to to recognize that I'm not as good at something as I'd like to be and then work towards it than to just pretend that I'm good enough. So when you ended up running the the second time, what was it that you said, hey, I have this thing that I want to share with the nominating committee that, that if I don't run, they won't hear this? What What was that? The biggest thing that I had was, and I, it came down to the, I described it as a concept of like embracing complexity, which like sounds kind of cliche. And like I used it a lot this year and it almost got kind of cheesy. But but ultimately what I meant by that was was going back to and when that officer was removed that like the world is too complex to treat people like they're not complex. And so when we have conversations about how does our organization get better, we can't pretend that there's some simple solution. And we can't go out and virtue signal that, you know, we're, we're doing what the rest of society is doing. So that means that we're, we're doing the right thing. Like, no, we need to like actually dive into conversations to the point that we can figure out what we actually have to do, like the tangible things that we're going to do to make our organization better, not just remove people for things that happened years ago. And yeah, I don't know. So there, there was a lot there. Um, I mean, let's stay on that. That's actually an interesting (laughs) topic, right? Because I I actually just heard a phrase from a guy named Zach Stein. He is is a very interesting way to describe things. He says, you know that somebody has an ideology or they've been propagandized to the, to like a a degree that uh, they're no longer reachable when they use self-terminating cliches, right? So like, it's like, uh, you know, we, oh, well, we just have to trust the science on this one, right? Or the, you know, the science is spoken or, you know, that this is the consensus on things, right? And the, the purpose of a self-terminating cliche is to end the conversation where there's nowhere to go, right? And the interesting thing about you saying, hey, people are infinitely complex or, you know, we have to, is that it's like forcing the door open and saying like, even the things that would be easy for us to all agree on, like we should probably keep that door open, right? Like let's let's not just go ahead and make a decision that this is the right answer for all time. Oh, 100%. And, and there was a lot of different ways that I saw that playing out. So some of it was in conversations that you'd have with board of directors. Um, and, and in other ways, it was, it was as far as agriculture goes. Like I grew up in a interest with an interesting perspective on agriculture because my family grows organic row crops and we have dairy cattle, but we don't sell milk anymore. It got dropped in the route 25 years ago almost. Um, but the cattle are conventional, but the land is certified organic. And then, you know, I got into FFA world and it felt like a, a lot of things that I heard about organic agriculture was organic agriculture was terrible and like shaming organic farmers. And like for the first several years of my time in FFA, like I would not tell people that my family grew organic crops because I was afraid that I'd be shunned. But then that that has shifted and I've noticed that shift, but it there there's still more like I I wanted to talk about the complexity of agriculture too and that again there isn't 
there isn't an easy answer to everything. We shouldn't all do the same thing. Like we don't have to pretend that there's one right way to do agriculture. Um, so that was another piece of it. And so all, all of those things kind of came together. But ultimately what I realized this year as I as I thought about the world and I thought about FFA through that lens, you know, I, I thought that a lot of that would happen in the the big conversations on the board of directors with the sponsors board, with foundation. That you um, as a national <clears throat> FFA officer would be in a room, it'd be the six of you with the board and they would say, board, what do you think? Mm-hmm. But it didn't play out like that. No. And, and I mean, there were, there were still meaningful conversations that happened on the board. Um, but the most, by far the most meaningful things that I did this year were the, just the times that I spent having conversations with individual students. And many of those conversations were the, with the students who felt how I had often felt about national FFA, that just that there's a, a disconnect between what's happening at the national level and the messaging from the national level to like the actual grassroots FFA chapters. And what is that disconnect? I think it's that it's, it's hard to explain exactly what it is, but I think it's, it, a lot of it comes from, or this was my perception at least, a lot of it comes from the fact that at the national level, we, we feel this pull to go in the direction that like broader culture is going in. And so like if something is cool for corporations to do, then this is what National FFA needs to talk about. Whereas students from small town America, students from urban Chicago don't necessarily care about the messaging of corporations. Like they they want to go to school and they want to have a place where they belong. They want to go to school and they want to have friends and they want to be able to have a future for themselves and they want to be able to find out the path that they're supposed to take in the world. And it doesn't. What it, was the message that you felt like the, the national wanted you to, to push down into the broader part of FFA that, that didn't seem right? A lot of it was, was surrounded or it was surrounding like the concept of, of inclusion, diversity and equity. And, and there's, again, there, there is so much to that. Um, and ultimately how I see it is that like there, there is room for the organization to grow. Um, and I see that largely as being like our, our FFA chapters should reflect the communities in which they reside. And so if there is a disconnect in the local chapter, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's ask why is this demographic of student not as involved in FFA as this one? We can talk about that. Right. Because sure. you could have like you're in California, you may have a student body population that's 70% you know, Hispanic and the FFA chapter is made up of only 10% Hispanic kids. Like mm-hmm. then you're saying like, hey, whoa, what's going on here? What is it, what is it about the organization that students don't feel like they sh- they belong here or that it's the right one for them because they're involved in agriculture, their families are, and yet they're not a, a part of the Future Farmers of America program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's so much of that. And that is what I will say now. We have a new CEO as of May or June. I don't remember his official start date, um, but that's something that he's talked about. I'm on a strategic strategic planning task force for the next few years um, for FFA. And that's a lot of what we've talked about too. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about how FFA now um, is approaching that. Um, I think some of those things have changed in the last year, but, but the, but the, the difficulty is when, is when we try to zoom out from, from the complexity of the individual chapters. And we try to say from the national level that we just make like these broad statements about how FFA isn't diverse enough. It's like, well, but, but for some 
chapters, like there, there's nothing we can do about it. And to say that, that diversity is only about what you look like is not helpful. Yeah. It's a self-terminating cliche, right? Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, Hey, we, we believe in diversity and inclusion and that is the end of the statement, right? That is in and of itself, not complex, right? It is, it is oversimplifying something that is very complex, but yet the, the, the self-termination part of that makes it so if you have something nuanced that you want to talk about, just the very fact that you don't agree with the cliche means that you're somehow on opposition and that you should be completely rejected, pushed out and canceled. Yeah. And, and there were times I, I would ask, there was, there was a couple of meetings that we had with, with representatives from, um, from our corporate sponsors. And there's some, and like, we had some really, really meaningful conversations sometimes. And I was pleasantly surprised <laughs> because I, I didn't realize that was happening. Um, but there, there were times that I, I would, I just ask questions. Like, I don't think that I have the answers. And that's another thing I told the committee when I ran is like this whole complexity thing. It's not because I have the answers to the complex problems. It's that let's ask the questions. Like, don't, don't stop before you ask the questions. And so I asked sometimes, I was like, okay, but like, if you say, you know, we want 50% of, you know, our, our employees or whatever, um, like members of this panel to be diverse, like, what do you mean by that? Like, what's your definition of diverse? Cause like, I don't know. I think it's hard to say that an individual is or isn't diverse. Cause like it's diverse means that you're representing a spectrum. Right. And, and which spectrum, right? Because you're not asking, and, yeah, and you're not asking like, uh, Hey, you know, this person believes that consciousness is, you know, self-generated and you, you know, human beings have free will and this person doesn't. And therefore they're a diverse set of ideas. Right. And those categorically are really fundamentally come down to like, what do people think? Right. But then mm-hmm. you're slamming diversity into this very small, narrow window. Yeah. And, and I will push back and say that like, there are certain spectrums of diversity that mean more to people. And I think that's like that's that's fair because at the end of the day, like so much of this comes down to perception, and I understand that. I kind of hate that things are about optics, but like that's how people work. Um, but but people people care more about racial diversity than diversity of how you think about consciousness, because like that's that's more a part of our lives. Maybe they do, you know. May, maybe they do, or maybe that it's uh, the simplest thing to have a discussion about, right? It's it's much more complicated to talk about the 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 things that are you know what actually are the nuance of the of the difference of our opinions than it is for us to talk about like well i can see it as as plain as black and white um what what whether or not this is diverse and i think that i i I would say that most of what we think of in that vein we think it's the most important to people because of the intransigent minority because there are a group of people that 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 is the most important thing to them and so for them yelling and and making accusations writing articles that slander people that get tons of views right that generates that energy that makes it feel like this is what most people are talking about and then therefore most people are thinking about it because that's what's been brought up to the to the surface whereas if somebody wasn't slamming their hand on the table maybe we would be thinking about something else yeah and that's a good point but because we are thinking about that, I think we have to pay some homage to that. And so one of the things that I realized is coming into the role of national office, coming from a farm background is actually like that's a minority background to come from now for for a national Certainly. officer. Yeah. Um, oh, for a national officer even. Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. most of the national officers don't grow up on farms. Yeah. Like I would say there's there's usually one every year. 
Like the fact that there was two of us Whoa. this year was like, <laughs> it never happens. Um, and like a lot of them might have like shown livestock, but to actually be, and, and again, it's not, I, I don't think that it's better to be from one background or another, but most, most national officers were not raised on a farm where that was the income. Like, and I was, so there was two of us that were raised on a farm. I was the only one that was like, that was our hundred percent of our income. Um, and that's super rare. And so, and I don't, and I haven't done the math on like, if it is a proportional representation of like our, our membership, because it's also in Illinois, at least I think nine or 10% of FFA members actually come from a farm. So like, it's not super common anyway, but for, for farm kids, they have felt for some, I, I, I don't know how long, maybe since we changed our name and I'm, I'm for the name change. Like we're, we're not the Future Farmers of America anymore. We're the National FFA organization. And technically, FFA still stands for Future Farmers of America. We just don't use it like that. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's a hilarious hoop. That's, yeah. That's some funny. Yeah. Um, but but I'm here for it. And, and I mean, that's part of what what I talked about in my farewell address about how, you know, we, we want to remain rooted in agriculture. But agriculture is, is not as much about farming anymore as it used to be. Like, that's still the root of it, but a lot less people farm and a lot more of agriculture is spread out throughout the supply chain. And so if FFA is still going to just try to be for the farmers, then we're nothing. But if we, but we're not, we're not diverting from our values by embracing all pieces of the agricultural supply chain. It's just that like more people are in those spots than used to be. Um, but anyway, yeah, we got. I, I think that's an interesting, um, like you know, like if you want an organization that can have seven hundred thousand members, and you want to have more member, you know, more offices than there are WalMarts in the United States or more chapters, you do have to open yourself up. I, I actually did not realize that about the FFA. Mm-hmm. In my mind, it was still the Future Farmers of America because they're still wearing their blue corduroy jackets. Everybody wears them. They're they're embroidered in just such a way. They yeah. have a gold chain that goes I don't know from one place to another and. I don't, it's, it seems like uh, that's always been the same. That's like a shocking thing to me. Huh. Well, and that's one of the interesting things that we will debate about in the FFA is like some people think that we should change the jacket, that we shouldn't like have the jacket anymore. And some people want to change the emblem um, be- because we're still, it's been how long since 1988 and we're, s- we're still explaining to people that it's not actually the Future Farmers of America anymore because it's really, really hard to to walk that line of remaining who we are but also becoming who we could be. So you brought this up in your um, final speech. So when you're a national FFA officer, they they have a convention and at the convention, the officers that were there for the past year kind of run the show. They're the MCs, they hand out awards, they're, it's like a bunch of pomp and circumstance, but it goes on for days. And then each officer gives a farewell address. And I actually got to come to see yours. Talk about why you did the the speech you did and kind of what you talked about. It took me a while to figure out how to say what I wanted to say, because even before I ran, I knew that I wanted to address somewhat the idea that the FFA doesn't feel united and, and somewhat I wanted to address that like farm kids like myself felt like we didn't belong. Um, but I wanted to do it in a nuanced way. And it's really, really hard. To, to give a message in a nuanced way in 20 minutes on a stage. Like when I can't have like conversations, that's why some of the most meaningful things I did this year was conversations is because there's the back and forth and you can get feedback and you can understand 
how to explain your point to this particular person. So to do that from a stage to 10, 15,000 people is really hard. But I, I realized, so I ended up talking about the balance of, of tradition and change and how, like, I, I firmly believe that in, and there might be exceptions to this, but in most cases, like, true progress comes when when you understand the tradition. And, and maybe you don't have to honor the tradition, but you at least have to understand it in order to then make change that honors that. Um, and so I talked about it in terms of, of the FFA and that we have a, we call it the FFA creed, but it's just five paragraphs that an ag teacher wrote in 1929, um, was adopted in 1930 as the official FFA creed. And it just outlines what, what it means to be an FFA member. And we have kept that creed since 1930. And what is the creed? Do you want me to say the whole thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I could say the whole thing. Um, the first paragraph is that I believe in the future of agriculture with a faith born not of words but of deeds, achievements won by the present and past generations of agriculturists in the promise of better days through better ways, even as the better things we now enjoy have come to us during the struggles of former years. That's not- good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Nice <laughs> yeah, job. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's the introductory paragraph. Um, yeah, and it goes on to talk about, you know, the, the importance of hard work and in leadership and in respect and of, you know, um, making enough honest wealth and you know, giving charity when needed, but, but, but that our goal is that less will be needed and just like really honorable things. Um, and it used to be, it used to talk about, you know, I believe in the future of farming. And then the, the student delegates in what was it, 1993, um, they, they decided to revise the creed, but those revisions came about because an entirely new creed was proposed. And so this was somewhat, this was kind of the fallout of the 1988 name change. It's like, oh, FFA, it's not farming anymore. What are we going to do? We need a new creed. Um, but the the delegates did not want a new creed. And it was that was interesting because often it's it's young people that are inciting revolution. But in that case, it was the adults. Oh, interesting. So the, the adult board of directors had approved the new creed and they sent it to the students. And they said, you know, like, this is up for debate, like, approve it or not. And they and they didn't approve it. And I think that's interesting because that's also what seems to be happening now in FFA is that often it's it's the adults who who want to to push the limits of of how progressive we can be. And it's the students that are saying, wait, like there's 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 purpose in why we are the way that we are. And like there is I like I'm glad that there is some element of that balance because like we we can't just stay who we are all the time. Like we, we do need to, we need to be somewhat progressive, but we need to be really, really careful about how we do that. Because if, if we try to be progressive and we don't understand how our students feel at the grassroots level, then at some point they're just going to not, they're not going to take it anymore. And I think like my, my cynical future of FFA is that like if, if national FFA is so out of touch with the student members and with states, then states will find a way to just do FFA on their own and not be a part. And I don't, I don't want that to happen because like there's so much value in having the national organization and how I see it is that the role of national FFA is to be a conduit to elevate best, pra- best practices and to, to have resources to create curriculum for student leadership conferences. Like there is so much value there. But we can't lose touch with who we actually are. And it truly is that concept of fractal localism, right? Where like what you want to do is each chapter should be designed for what's going on 
in your super local area. And then as you get wider and wider out, you want that there to be less and less control as that you get further away from whatever that community is. And I mean, FFA has done a great job, whereas so many other organizations, so many other government bureaucracies, all of these things keep shifting to say, wouldn't it be better if we just have one central control and then everything can be the same and everything can be equal, but that our system works a lot better if there's um, flexibility down at the base, but flexibility becomes a, a liability for a national organization because you can say, look at that one group right there doing something that we don't approve of or culture doesn't approve of. We're going to point them out and say that black stain goes on everyone. And that's the really, really difficult thing is because we all wear the same emblem. And so, yeah, when when things happen in FFA chapters that should not happen, often it is blamed on FFA as a whole. And that and that's the risk that you take at having the the freedom of, of individuality of each chapter is you take the risk of some chapters not being up to standard. But I'm confident that that risk is worth it because for the most part, FFA chapters are better when they can best serve their communities. And that's what I would tell, you know, often FFA members think that national officers are the important FFA members, um, whereas like the members from their chapters and like officers in, in the chapter think they're like, oh, no, like you do the big work. And I would always tell them, like when, when people try to tell me that, I'd say, no, like you understand what's happening in your chapter. Like I would show up at a chapter for 45 minutes, maybe. I'd be at a state convention for two days. And I'd, I... I can't understand all the needs of their chapter. Like I can show up and I can give an inspirational keynote, but I don't, I don't know what the 40 students in your chapter need. But if you're a chapter officer there, like you go to school with these people, you go to chapter meetings with these people, like you, you hop in a van and you go to contests with these people. So like you do the important work because you're the chapter officer here and you understand them. And so I think that's some of where the disconnect is too, with like national FFA and the local level is that national FFA has tried to be, has, has tried to do everything and tried to tell chapters what to do when at the end of the day, like, I think we need to be a resource for chapters. And so like, I, w I would give chapter officers advice about things that, you know, I had seen in other places. And that was one of my favorite things to do is, you know, go to a camp in South Dakota and say, hey, when I was in Tennessee two weeks ago, like, here's what I saw this other chapter doing. And like, that was really cool. But I ultimately... I'm not going to ever try to tell someone what they should do in their chapter because I don't know it. Well, I mean, having been at the top of organizations, right, you get all the way to the World Bank and there's like this, it's a weird, you know, it's a limitation of human cognition, right? Like if you're at the top and you hear about the nuance of the things down below, you're like, yeah, 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 but I don't have time to understand each one of their issues. It would be easier if we could just, you know, have this one solution. And then there's also like... um you know, a level of, of ego that goes along with it, right? You get this sensation of, I'm, you know, we're at the national level, we see things, we have the power, you know, I was at the World Bank, it's like, we have huge amounts of power, of course, we know what's going on there. And I think it is almost irresistible uh, to, to, um, to keep from wanting to just be like, why don't we just, why don't you guys just let the centralized decisions happen here? But I thought your speech, um, it, it was genius in the way that you told stories that allowed people on every single level to be able to understand the point of what you were saying, right? You told the the story about like loading up the, the horse trailer um, in a way that was more efficient. I, it was a good, do you mind telling it now? Oh yeah. <laughs> so, so growing up, I showed cattle um, at, at county fairs and my brother Paul would usually drive the truck and 
I started to, I was probably, I don't know how old, maybe 10, 10 or so. Um, I started, we'd pack the gooseneck with all our show supplies like the night before. And then we'd load the cattle early in the morning, head to the show. <clears throat> and I remember when I started loading the, the gooseneck by myself, the, the spare tire was always like right next to the side door, but it was like at the front of the gooseneck and like, it just didn't really fit very well there. So when I was loading it myself, I was like, I'm just going to like shove this up to the front and then just stack some things on top of it. Like it fits better. Now I can fit everything in here. Cause there was a lot of things to fit in that gooseneck. But then um, the next morning, load the cattle, head to the show, have a flat tire, which flat tires happen a lot um, in, in our family. We, we, we run tires on trailers until they go flat, pretty much. Um, and then Paul's like, oh, you know, this is normal. Like, he, he changed a, a heck ton of spare tires um, in, in his time. And so he, he hopped out of the truck and he goes to the side door to get a spare tire and he opens it. And the spare tire is not an easy reach. So I didn't have time to tell this part of the story in my speech, but we ended up having to like climb over some of the cows in the trailer to get to the spare tire. And so it was, it was a hot mess. And it was all because I thought that I knew what I was supposed to do. I thought that I was being more efficient, but I, I didn't even think about asking, why is this the way that it is? Cause when I just looked at it, it didn't make sense that the tire was there, but I never asked why. And so that was, yeah, that, that was my introduction. To I mean, it's the perfect metaphor to introduce people to Chesterton's fence, right? That's that's the very – in fact, the guy sitting next to me was like, man, that, that's giving me chills. That's Chesterton's fence. Did and I was really? like, yeah, that's right. That was like one of the things that I wanted to – I didn't want to get into the, here's Chesterton's fence because you're talking to 14-year-olds. They don't care. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't care when I was 14. But, man, that's really cool. It, yeah, and so, you know, you crossed. think about that and you think like – Yes, every one of us should you you so for anybody that doesn't know Chesterton's fence is the idea of like let's say you just bought a bunch of property and now you're going out and you're wandering around in your property and you discover a fence and you're like, "Ah, what's this fence doing here? I don't want this fence here." So you tear it out because you're like, you know, I want to be able to walk freely here. With what Chesterton's fence says is you shouldn't do that. You should first go try and understand why was there a fence here? Because it might be that the neighbor has a bull and that this is the one fence that was keeping it from running over into your property and killing you and your children or, you know, whatever thousand things you could think of. And it's just a really good example. But when you just give it to people as Chesterton's fence, it's not anywhere near as relevant, but your story made it so everybody is like, oh yeah, there are a lot of things when I'm like, this is dumb. Why are we doing it this way? I'm just going to change that without ever confronting why we did it this way. Mm -hmm. And that speech, like... Like pretty much every speech that I've ever given is something that like I I write it for my audience, but ultimately I'm writing it because I need to hear it. And as as much as I have I have often talked about the importance of tradition this year, and I didn't realize because it, it took me a while to figure out that that was like the delivery method, that like that was the point that I wanted to use to convey all the other things that I wanted to say. Um, but I, I was just looking back at some social media posts that I made six months into the year. And I talked about building innovation on tradition. And then I realized, like, I, I gave this speech about it then six months later, and I, I didn't realize that that was something that I had really talked about all year. Um, but part of why I've talked about tradition so much is because I, I have this tendency, and it's, it's a good thing and a bad thing, um, but I try to balance the room. And so if a lot of people in a room are talking about or have one opinion, then I will argue for the other opinion, even if that's not where I naturally lean most towards because I can see both sides of things. So I can argue for either side. But 
put me in a different room where most of the people are on the other side of it, then I'll, I'll argue for, for the one that is less represented. Um, and so I've realized that in a lot of spaces, a lot of times in agriculture, I'm the one who's more on the progressive side. I'm like, but what if we changed this? Like, what if we did this differently? What if we said, get rid of the commodity system? You know, like, but then I, I get into FFA and I'm on the national level and there, I no longer saw a whole lot of need to argue for change. And I saw a lot of need to pull back and say, but wait, what, what is the tradition that we're missing here? And so I, part of why I gave that speech was to remind myself that we need both. And it's okay to be the kind of person that leans more in one direction or the other, as long as you don't invalidate the other side. Yeah, as long as you don't terminate their side saying like, yeah. hey, hey, no, the other side has no purpose and no point and they're, they're bad for believing that. Because then like that doesn't even help you ultimately. Because, like that is not a sustainable way to win. Like maybe you win in the short term, but I don't think anyone has ever truly won the long game by terminating their opponent's opinion, opinions. Like when it comes to like philosophical arguments like that and when it comes to things like the FFA, like if if at the national level they they aren't in touch with the local level like it will go down in flames right i mean and if you decide that you want to go to war by using force by shouting down the other side then the only way to victory is absolutely destroying the other side to the extent that they can never come back and then you don't have an organization at the end of that and yeah. so but th- which is why it's um there's like some I don't, I don't, I, I always want to use the word ironic, but I don't want to misuse it. But like the day after the, the convention speech that you gave, this article comes out in, in the ag world or some letter, which was like saying, you know, look at the, how, you know, the FFA has all these systemic racism problems and all of these, like, you know, we went around and there were people supporting Donald Trump and this is making people not feel like they're invited here. And people, um, they had watched, a, they had shown a Kamala Harris, like, in my opinion, propaganda video to a bunch of high school kids that didn't really like it, but sat respectfully. And then there's a couple of kids that scream, let's go Brandon, right? And then they were using this in the article or letter or whatever that was to show like, this is further evidence that the FFA is in need of deep reform. So it was like, I don't know, painful and coincidental and ironic that your your point of view and your speech came out. And then I don't know if it was the next day, it was that that article or two days later, something like that. Yeah, it was it was a few days later. Yeah, that was that was difficult to read. Um, having been at convention, I, I will say to your point about um, the video of Vice President Harris, like it. Every national convention, like we invite all kinds of government figures to to come and give remarks. And if they want to send a video, like Secretary of Agriculture sent a video, like if they want to send a video, we do that. Um, so that's like that's that's common protocol, regardless of of who is in the White House. Um, do we always love what they say? No, but but we give them we give them the honor of of their title. It was bad. It was it was and, like and to be it was fair, like I also having... didn't watch it because I was chairing that session, so I was backstage and. Me and my teammate were backstage hoping that no one would yell, let's go, Brandon. Well, so I was ju- I had just come, come from being like we had done a little like uh, session. And so I was like just coming off there and they're like, and now a message from Kamala Harris. And so I turn and on this giant jumbotron, there is Kamala Harris there dressed very well, speaking very well, like very upbeat. 
but like completely disconnected from everything that had been going on. So you have this like tenor and tone of the room and like it's excitement and it's about mentors. And, you know, there was a band that had just played and now she gets up there and she gives this speech that is like, look what the democratic party is doing for agriculture. And she's citing like things that are completely divorced from everything that the farm kids are doing. That's not the FFA's fault. That's the video that the vice president of the United States sent. But like, it was like having propaganda from the U S post office or something. Like it was, it was just like, it was like laughably bad. And like, I was thinking like, this is really similar to what it would be like if you were in a high school gymnasium and somebody stood up and they were like, I'm going to give you a sex education class, right? Like it was just so jarring that of course high school kids are going to push back on this. Like, what did you expect? Yeah, there was a lot of things in that article, but I I think the biggest thing that frustrated me about it, well, there's, I say the biggest, and then then I'm going to list a couple things. (laughs) One of the things is is the the claim that you know we're writing this because we love the FFA and and I I will be one of the first people to say that like if you love something you want it to be better and so I'm not going to say that you know if if you're critiquing an organization that that means you don't like it no like if you really love it you want it to be better that's why I ran for national office because I wanted national FFA to be better but the the way the format in which you address those things that you want to be better should not be an article that you share on Twitter talking about how FFA is terrible. Like that, to me, the, that the, we love the FFA, like that, that does not land with me based on the things that you say. Another thing is claims made about how the officers on stage, of which I was one of them, um, heard what was going on and didn't try to stop it. Now, first off, when you're on the stage, you can't hear what the random kid in the nosebleeds is yelling. Secondly, are we really going to stop a timed, like to the minute, a timed convention session to say, I think I heard someone say, let's go, Brandon. Let's stop the convention and make them like, what are you going to do? That's not going to help. Like, yeah, you that's keep, like your principal standing up there and being like, yes, they just talked about sex, but everyone be quiet. You know, stop it. You know, it's, it's not going to work. Yeah, just like, just okay, let it. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. So, that, I mean, that's what we did. Um, and then, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, what, what, what are you going to do about it? Um, and then another thing is like, there were comments made about specific, uh, specifically two of my teammates being tokenized all year and how they just had to like sit back and take it. And like, you don't, I mean, you don't say that about anyone, let alone without asking them if that's how they feel. And like all my teammates and I, like I'm not going to speak for them and we had different thoughts about it, but all of us were frustrated with the article. But that was just appalling to me um, to speak about my teammates in that way. And my teammates and I disagree about things, but we love each other very deeply because we recognize that like we are human before any of our opinions. And that is the thing that mattered. And I mean, that's how you have a successful team. So those things were frustrating to me. Um, And then another thing was to say, you know, like if you say you love the FFA, then that means that you love students. And then to put pictures of students' faces in this article and to put in the caption something like neo-Nazi, that is not love for those students. And that did not sit right with me at all. Yeah. Talk about the ultimate self-terminating cliche, right? That's like, if you point at someone and say you're a Nazi, 
right? Like that's, that's, that's trying to end their career. That's trying to end everything about what they're doing. And it's saying, we want to make this so repellent and so toxic that no one ever talks to them again. And to put their, their photograph up there and like for how far it spread on social media, like that's like they were playing with real nuclear waste there. Yeah. And, and another thing that frustrated me is, is I saw a lot of people share it who I, I don't necessarily know very well, but I know well enough that if they talked to me and we talked about what happened at convention, and like there, there were things that happened at convention that should not have happened at convention. Like there were isolated incidents, like there were merchandise booths selling things that we didn't approve for them to sell. Like there were things happening and like National FFA like released a statement about it. Like we talked about it. The board talked about it. Um, they, like there were things that happened that shouldn't have happened, but there wasn't a whole lot that national FFA staff or officers could have done about it. Um, and a lot of it, that was actually a, a teacher in, there's a Facebook group for, for ag teachers. Um, and there's a teacher who made a, a really eloquent post about, about what happened. And ultimately he said like, I mean, most, most of that is like, this is students at national convention are not under the watch of national FFA staff. They're under the watch of their teacher. So if like, if you want to criticize someone, like go to the teacher and talk to them. And, but, but then even within that, I mean, a lot of teachers, this is their first big event with students in two years. There's a lot of young ag teachers. There's massive teacher turnover. So young ag teachers, first big event with their students like that. You, you can't police your students. And also they're students. They're 15 years old. Right. And, I, and I fully believe in holding people accountable. But posting a picture of someone and calling them a neo-Nazi is not holding them accountable. That's, that's terminating the conversation. And that's not effective. And so there's a lot of people that share this, that like now this is their perception. Like they're close enough to FFA that they see something like this. They like kind of know what it is, but they're not so close to it to realize, to, to read between the lines and realize that there's a lot of assumptions made in that article that are simply not true. Um, and the things that are true are twisted in a way that is is just... Well, I was at the actual event that they were talking about when it all happened. And my experience of it was like, oh, man, you know, like those three or four, or I, maybe it was 10, maybe more. I don't really know how many, but it wasn't, I was in a section, you know, and it was no one around me. And so to be like, all of the FFA is is now bad because of this and it's kids participating in something that's like a much larger cultural movement. It was just... It was uh, it was one of those things where I thought like, man, um, I would imagine that the people that wrote that article genuinely have the uh, thoughts that they do. I, I I don't doubt that they feel that way, and I imagine they feel like they're in the minority in the ag world. Like, but I think that the way that they chose to express this opinion said far more about them wanting to be a celebrity in that movement against uh, the FFA than it said about trying to achieve something important and durable. Because there was no, there was not going to be any durability in that argument. It, it was, um, we want to be as public, hey, I want my name to be at the top of this, of this list that, of people that are against these actions. And that said to me, like, okay, adults, fighting with 15 year olds like you got your point across and you got it to spread throughout social media like i don't but you know that that's your legacy that's what you're leaving yeah because you're you're not gonna get fame for making a phone call to someone who could actually 
take action. You're going to get your fame. Yeah, or from. give you a perspective you yeah. don't want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. No, so that, that definitely... So now you're 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 a retired national FFA officer, right? So I can't even imagine what this must be like because you you went from like running a rock concert where when I saw you at the convention, right, there were people that were um, like, "Hey, can I take take a photo with you?" Like, "Hey, I'd really like you to just sit and like talk." You know, people like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, What is it like to go back to normal life where you're a college student? It's it's really interesting, and I have to say this is kind of ironic. I had I had a dream last night that I had to do convention again, <laughs> and I forgot that I had to do convention again. It was like, I think it it was like the day after convention, and they're like, "All right, like time to do it again." And I was like, "Well, what if I don't remember my lines?" Uh, so yeah, it's like a month and a half later, and I'm still having mild convention nightmares because um, yeah, that was like a really really big thing. And so now I was just talking with one of my teammates yesterday about how it almost feels fake that I did that because that's like such a big thing that like 20 year olds don't just do. (laughs) And so to be like starting to be distanced from it, it's like, did I actually do that? Or was that like all a dream? Um, Because yeah, life is different now. I haven't, I don't go back to school until January in the spring semester. So I've been taking road trips the last few weeks, spending time with family. And I went, went out to Texas and New Mexico to see some friends, some of whom I made this year um, on FFA trips, some of whom I knew from a few years ago with FFA. So I've been doing a lot of traveling still. So I have still not really living a normal life. All my friends are still in in their classes and getting ready for finals. I was like, what's cool? (laughs) I don't remember what that's like. Um, And then signing up for classes again, like I kind of forgot how to be a student, like what all I had to do to sign up for classes and some of that stuff. So I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to being back in school in some ways, to have a consistent friend group again, to live in the same place for more than a week at a time is going to be really, really nice. But I'm I'm not looking forward to spending a lot of time doing things that don't feel meaningful. Because in the FFA role, like there was a lot of mundane tasks that I didn't love, but just about every single one of them, I could still I could still tie it back to the value in it. So if I was filling out an expense report, it's like, okay, this is kind of annoying. I don't like looking for all the receipts. And then if I don't find a receipt, then I have to like fill out another form. Like all that wasn't fun, but I could point to the meeting in it because it was expenses from travels to where I met, you know, X, Y, and Z person where I had this really meaningful conversation with him. Whereas like when I go to classes and I think some of it's because I, I've had a weird college career so far. I have hardly had any in-person classes. So like most of college work for me has been kind of drudgery. Um, but it's really hard when I'm writing an essay about something that I don't care about to understand like why, like this does not make anyone's life better. Yeah. There's a, there's an author named David Foster Wallace who gives this amazing commencement speech. And in it, uh, as he's talking to these kids that are graduating, he says, there's this huge swaths of life that no one tells young people about, but that all of the parents in the, in the audience know about. And it is that, most of life is actually tedious, boring, rote activities that don't stack up to anything. And he and he gives the example of like standing in line at the grocery store. And I think what's interesting about like what you're saying in your, I could be doing this expense report and tie it back to this thing. He basically says all meaning in life is your ability to tie things back to something that does matter. Because you can either look at it and say, 
oh, look at how slow that checkout counter person is, or, you know, look at the dumb purchases that this person in front of me made. If they would just go faster, I could get done. But like, ultimately, if you see the humanity in things, then that's, that's the life. And I think it's just harder when you're not in this like amazing role of, of excitement of the national FFA officer. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I, I've learned how to find value in a lot of things and especially before. So the first two months I got elected on a zoom call end of October. So I didn't get elected in the rock concert environment. Um, I got elected in, in my family's garage, um, with my laptop in front of me. But I mean, that was a cool experience too. Cause normally when you get elected, you're surrounded by your other candidates, but I got to be with my family. And cool. all of the Articulate Ventures network, like there were dozens of us watching online. We were all watching. I yeah. remember you won. And then I went upstairs and Anne was feeding Violet and we were all excited for it. It was an exciting thing, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah. So, so we got elected my teammates and I, and I had met some of them in person from when we were state officers together a couple of years prior, but we didn't meet in person until two months later. So we moved to Indianapolis in January. And then we didn't travel until beginning of April. So there was like three months. There was two months there that I didn't feel like a national officer because we had like weekly Zoom calls. We were finishing the semester. Like we didn't really do anything. Um, And then the three months when we were in Indy, we were really busy with a lot of training for the first month. And then we started to do pretty regular virtual chapter visits. So we'd hop on a Zoom call, do a workshop with students or give a keynote and just talk to them, whatever. And it was really hard to find a meaning in that sometimes because sometimes you would log on to a Zoom call and you would not see a student's face. Like everyone's camera was off and sometimes they wouldn't unmute themselves. So like you could, I ran a workshop in a chat one time because no one wanted to talk and they didn't have good enough internet to turn their cameras on. And like, that's really, really hard to do because often like as a facilitator, you can, you can create some energy, but you can't create. Oh, all you're of it. only the spark in that situation. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and so I, when you don't have the back and forth, it is really, really hard to keep going. I, I went from giving all these live and in-person talks to doing talks where people are like, "Oh, well, will you address this four thousand person audience?" But it's going to be online, and they'd be like, "Isn't this great?" Like, you, even though I was like, I was able to create a paycheck, and it was like a thing for me to do day in and day out. I hated it. I was like, "This is a certain form of prison." Right. This is like a Black Mirror episode where I'm standing here and in the room, there's no energy and excitement. And the only thing I can do is be this actor on this thing. Whereas when you're live and in person with people, there is an electricity like you and I sitting across the table from one another is a hundred times better than me doing an interview over Zoom because we can see and feel and the room is the same temperature. We're having the same experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was hard. But that was one of the places where I learned to find value in things that feel like they don't have value because <clears throat> there was one one workshop that I did and there was two students that logged on. It was like a, an optional. It was part of their virtual state convention. So it's just like, here's the Zoom link. Like hop on if you want to. And there was two people who showed up and their cameras were off. And if I had more people than that, usually I had like a PowerPoint and we'd go through and like do activities like a workshop, but I don't like doing workshops with two people. Um, (laughs) So I usually just try to have a conversation, but it's harder to have a conversation when you can't see their faces. So I kind of like started like asking them questions. And one of them was a seventh grader. One was an eighth grader, like just got into FFA. So didn't know even much about it. So even a lot of like my stock list of like great questions to ask FFA members, like they didn't know what their SAE was because they didn't know what an SAE was. And so I kind of had to start from scratch with the conversation, but about, and I had an hour 
time block for this. And I was like, this is going to be the longest hour of my life. And we were like probably 10, 15 minutes in. And like they slowly started to talk more. And one girl turned her camera on. And I was like, this is a win. Like we're, we're going places. And then a little bit later, the other girl turned her camera on. And by the end of the hour, they were talking to each other. And like I could have left and they probably wouldn't have noticed. And that is one of my biggest successes from the year. Like, yeah, I can give a speech to 20,000 people in person, whatever. No, like I get two people on Zoom who didn't know each other to talk to each other. And one of the difficult things to learn in in the role and something that I think is vital if you're not going to hate it because it's really, really hard. But you have to learn that your success as a national officer or as like as anyone in that type of role or like where you're trying to influence people, it's not if people remember your name, but it's it's if people believe in themselves more because they met you. And so that was something that took me a while to learn. And it's one of those things I have to keep relearning because I, you know, you forget every day and you got to remind yourself. Um, but that was, that was really cool because normally I'd measure success by how many people were there and how many people would talk about me after I left. But, but I realized, no, like it, these, these people are talking to each other and I made, you know, 45 minutes of their life more interesting, not because of me, but because I, I created something that then sustained past me being there. When I was driving to come to the convention, when you were going to be speaking, I was listening to Renee Girard. And like, even, even when we saw each other the night before, I was like, I can't even tell you, I'm listening to this Renee Girard. It was like all I could think about. And one of the big things he talks about is this concept called mimetic desire. And mimetic desire is generated by you seeing other people. They all want this thing. And uh, I even wrote, you know, the executive producer, Ben Anderson, when I'm sitting at uh, at the convention, probably Kate Crosby, like, I think I'm in a temple for mimetic desire when I was at this FFA convention, right? Because the lights are going, the music is going, it's super intense. And I, I had respect for FFA. I, had, I knew kids that had like practical skills from it, but I never understood why people were so intense with it. And you're seeing this music or you're hearing this music and you're seeing all these lights and the jumbotron and you've got six people that are presented like superheroes or demigods or something. And you can see how all these kids would look around and say, everyone else around me wants to be one of those people. Therefore, I should want to be one of those people. So now that you've gone that distance from being that girl seven years ago, you know, you're 15 years old. And you felt that first pull of, of mimetic desire, that first thing of like, I feel like I belong and now I'm orienting myself towards the top of that hierarchy. What do you wish that, that girl, that 15 year old girl knew now that you've made it all the way to the top? Hmm. There's a lot of things that I wish that I knew. And honestly, I don't know if there's anything that I could tell myself that that, that I would actually understand until I lived the life that I have lived. Because it's the, the things that I have learned and the things that I wish I knew are things that I learned because I lived an experience. And so, you know, like running for national office the first time and not getting elected, like I can't, you can't replicate. I can't just tell someone, oh, it's okay that you didn't get elected. Like you're fine. It's okay. You'll get over it. Five months later, you won't care. But like, I mean, there's been a lot of candidates that I've talked to that, that I was friends with that didn't get elected. And it's like, you know, I, I can tell you what it was like for me, but I can't, I can't make it not suck. <laughs> um, 
but I don't know. I think that, yeah, at the time I, I did not like, I had no idea that I would end up there. Like I thought it would be cool. Like I thought it was cool that those people got to do that, but I did not think that it would be me. And so, you know, part of me wants to say, oh, I wish I could tell her that she would be there, but I don't. Because if I knew that I would be there, then I don't think I would value the fact that I was there nearly as much. So I don't know. I think things kind of happen how they're supposed to happen. And you know what you know when you know it for a reason. And then for all those thousands of kids that didn't get there, what do you what do you have to say to them? Like, hey, not that big of a deal. It wasn't that great. It is, it is a really, really meaningful experience. But I think it is overvalued by a lot of ag teachers, actually. Um, because that's, I know many people who, have run for an office at any level who run. And, and I'm one of those people. I, I ran originally for section office because my ag teacher pushed me to. And I'm so, so glad that she did. Like she saw potential in me. And I don't know. I don't think I would be here if she did not push me to do the things that I did. But as much as I love the FFA and I love being an officer, like that is not the path to a meaningful, fulfilling FFA career for everyone. And I think some people think that it is because like the national officer is at convention, like those are the ones that you see and those are the ones that are considered at the highest tier. Um, but I never thought of myself as like the best FFA member because I, being a, an officer in FFA is simply one one avenue to to find value in the organization. And those of us who become officers have a very, very like unique combination of skills and interests and of people who have believed in us and of just the right opportunities at the right times in the right places. And that's not going to happen for everyone. And there's people who become national officers who don't enjoy the fact that they're national officers. Like it is, it looks fun at convention and that's everybody gets like the national officer fever at convention. They're like, oh, that'd be so fun. But like, it's really, really, really hard to be a national officer. And so as much as, as I loved what I did and I'm glad that I got to do it, like it is not the place for everyone. And one of the most, I would say most inspiring people that I met this year um, was an officer at, from from a state that I traveled to, and their state that has their state officers, they have two of the state officers were officers the previous year, so they're like a vice president one year, and then they can run again to be president or secretary. And one of the vice presidents at the convention that I was at was planning on he had submitted his application, he was going to run for president. And the night before the interview process, he pulled his application, and he is he he probably would have been president if he had ran, uh, but he chose not to. Because he realized that he wasn't running for the right reasons. Like he, he just wanted to be the president and he thought it'd be cool to have his name on the wall. But he realized that before he actually went through with the process. And I am really, really proud of him for doing that. And I think a lot of people do not have the maturity to see that they only want the thing because everyone else wants it. And so that's where like the momentic desire thing is super fascinating to me. And I think the, the pushback to like some people will say, well, now I'm just not going to want anything that everyone else wants because I don't want to fall victim to it. But I think what you have to do is to see that like just because you want something that everyone else wants doesn't mean that's why you want it. But you have to be able to separate yourself from, you know, you, you have to understand why you want something. And so all of that to say, like to to those people who who want to be an officer or and and maybe some of them will and and some of them won't, I would say like find the thing that you want to do independent of whether or not anyone else wants to do it. And don't worry about 
if it ends up being the thing that everyone else wants to do or not. Like do the thing that is fulfilling for you. Do you have a thing that you want to do that other people don't want to do now that you're done with National FFA? I don't want to climb the corporate ladder. And that's what a lot of past national officers do. And that's great for them. Like if that was fulfilling for me, like that would, life would be super simple. But I. Oh, no. Climbing the corporate office is not super simple. It appears, it appears, there's a clear path. Somewhat. It appears to be a clear path. I think it seems that way. Yeah, I think it seems that (laughs) way. Okay, well, that makes me feel better that I don't want to do it. Um, No, because I, I thrive in a little bit of chaos. And I don't. And and not obviously there can be chaos anywhere, um, but I I like to take a little bit more risk, and I I don't want to be like I've spent so much of my life being the person who doesn't fit in. Like I'm not gonna force that and try to be the person who fits in. Like I added value to my team because I didn't fit in with my team. Like I added value to other teams I've been on to the FFA. Like because I thought things that other people didn't think, and I was willing to say things that other people wouldn't say. And so I don't I don't want to change that now. Well, you are uh, very well put together. And so when I had the chance at the convention to meet your family, I was expecting that I was going to meet like some country club people. Like I, I was prepared for us to be, you know, like, okay, everyone's wearing their dockers and they're, you know, they're, they're exactly right tucked in thing. And uh, I ended up um, being in an elevator with your mother, although I didn't know she was your mother at the time. There's thousands of people around. Like, how, how was I supposed to know? And all these people were saying, you know, like, oh, it was so good to see you. Oh, thank you. Everybody's very kind to her. And then we get around to the side and I discover this is your family. How would you describe your family? That is a good question. Uh, Yeah, people often don't expect my family to be what they are after they know me. Um, Because I I would say I look very different from them. Um, They're very... Not look. Dress and like present well, yourself yes. in a, in yes, a yes, different yes. way. Yes, yes, I would say that. Um, no, they're they're very humble, down to earth people, and and I, I strive to be that as well. Um, but I I have found so like in in some areas I don't like fitting in, but I've also realized that if I want to be effective in certain areas, like if I want to be a national FFA officer, like I have to I have to toe the line of fitting in just enough that people don't think I'm super weird. And like my family, and like my family will even tell you this. Like they're okay with being thought of as super weird, and like in in some realms that I'm doesn't okay with surprise that too. me at all. Yeah. yeah, no, they they will they will proudly claim that. Um, yeah, but but they're just very like they, each of us, like do we we follow that idea of doing the thing that's fulfilling, even if it's not what's popular or what other people want to do. Um, and I've I've learned so much from them. And being the youngest of five siblings has also influenced a lot of of a lot of how I am. And I think some of why. I've chosen to to maybe present myself differently is just because when you're the youngest of five, like you got to do something to stand out. Oh, I know this. I was the middle child of seven, right? So I had to like figure out, you know, I'm not going to be faster or smarter, you know, probably not even harder working than than the other people here. So I got to figure something else out to do. So I totally appreciate that. Your family, in my perspective, was... Um, I, I, down to earth is like um, a cliche to describe them. It, really? it would be, yeah, they, they were like, um, um, like some the, uh, like a family you would write a book about where, where you would say like, um, you could probably point out all the quirky things about them, but like, I mean, your mother and I had like a ama- like, a, a, I don't know, the conversation went for like two and a half hours. I was with your mom and her sister and your sister's husband, which is crazy because how old is your sister? 23. 
23, almost 24. And you're no, 21, almost 22, something yeah. like that. So like your sister's life is on a totally different trajectory. She's married to a guy who's doing like blacksmithing and they're, you know, working on their house and talking about the cows that they run. And your mom's talking, you know, yelling over to your brothers like, hey, remember when you, I let you guys make that ramp? And how many times did you, you know, fly ramp. off there? Yeah, like all these crazy things. And uh, I just wouldn't have, have picked it for you. And you say a lot of people are surprised by when they meet your family. Oh, very much so. And they're also surprised by the fact that I was homeschooled for a while. Like very, very surprised, which I I wouldn't change anything about my education experience, but I do consider it a win when people don't expect me to be homeschooled. What do you think it why, – why do you think people are surprised that you're not a homeschooled kid? Because I have social skills. <laughs> Yeah, because a lot of homeschool and, kids don't. Yeah. And like I'm, I'm friends with the, like I was in a lot of those circles, um, and and I know I know many other homeschoolers who have found who have found you know opportunities to to develop social skills. And I would say that I have, like I I had a different set of social skills. Like I was really really good at interacting with adults since I was a kid, but peer to peer interaction was something that I had to like consciously work on, and that's that's part of what the FFA did for me. Like if I wasn't in FFA, like people probably would look at me and say oh i bet she was homeschooled so oh interesting yeah mm -hmm. i mean your mom and i had a really interesting conversation about education because i'm right now looking you know for violet so should we send her to the public school should we find like a shishi private school should we send her to montessori should we go to like the the woodland waldorf kind of like uh hippie thing and it was a very interesting thing for your to hear your mom's perspective on what are the important things about education and she talked about you know, the amount of uh, projects that you guys did and how much you were working and how she didn't have you do busy, you know, BS work on those my words, certainly not your mother's words, but like <laughs> um, uh, it was just very much um, thinking about things in terms of art. And uh, it was it was very you had an extraordinary family like you like I don't think I think one of the reasons that you're not a weirdo homeschool kid is because your family is like. I, I wish I had a good book. I like, I wish I had a good comparison. I just they're don't. just really hard to describe. They are, yeah, <laughs> like the family that Pippi Longstockings would come from, but in like a wonderful, wonderful way, like quirky and different. And mm -hmm. yeah, no, that was one of the things that I loved about being homeschooled was that like learning was fun. And there were sometimes it's not like I woke up every day I was like, yay, I can't wait to do my math homework. But for the most part, like learning was, it was like a culture. And everything was just about being curious. And that, that came from both my mom's side and my dad's side, was just being curious about the world. And so then when I went to public school, at first I was like, why does everyone hate school? Like, I love learning. But then after I spent, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if there was a moment when I had a realization, but like the more time that I was there, the more I realized like, like just a regular, and like there are great things about the public school system, but there are also things about it that like you just go through the motions and you learn how to play the game to get the grades that you want. And like it sucks the life out of learning. And it's just like you're not learning for the joy of it. You're learning because this is what you have to do. And that I think I had the right balance because I started going to public school. I started playing in the band in like fourth grade and then I took like a math class in seventh grade. And then by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I took full time public school classes. And I think that was just about the right time. Like I got gradually eased into it. It wasn't just like dumped into high school, like, okay, now figure out how to make friends. But, but I still was able to maintain a little bit of that genuine love for learning. And I, I mean, some of my classes I definitely didn't love, but 
because I because I had already had this curiosity like cultivated within me before that, I was able to find the the meaningful things in my classes, even if other people couldn't. So you've had this interesting um, opportunity with the FFA to be able to interact with all these corporations and kind of hear about the future and talk with students. Where do you think agriculture is going in the next five years that other people don't think? Ooh. That, that adds a, a layer of fun to the question. Um, well, I don't know. I, I, well, because depending on, on who you ask, like people, people will say, I think there's, there's a lot of people think that it's just like consolidation, consolidation, consolidation. I don't think, I think in, in, some, in some respects, I think that will happen. But then there's other people who think that the whole local food movement is just going to like blow up. And I don't think that's really true either. I think I'm, as usual, somewhere in the middle. And I think there's going to be like a balance. There might be a divergence of, you know, like some people are going to go big. And that's what I've seen too is like it's either – it's not go big or go home. It's go big or go niche. And I think that right now like the balance of where we're at, I don't – I think it's going to change. And I think more – Perhaps more farmers will go niche in order to continue farming because that's sometimes the only option. And that's what my family had to do. Like we got dropped from the milk route. We couldn't just keep milking cows for fun. So we sold genetics and we sell like grass-based genetics to like homesteaders and relatively small, a lot of organic dairies. Like we found a spot that other people weren't filling. So I don't know. I think, I think some of agriculture is going to continue to consolidate, but I think some of it is, is going to fragment more. And I think... I think we're going to see more farmers taking on some of those tasks from farther downstream in the supply chain. I was uh, just flipping through Twitter the other day and I, I heard somebody put forward an idea that um, at first I didn't think was a realistic possibility, um, but uh, it was about China. And uh, they were saying, you know, what happens if China figures out a way to get all of their soybean production not through the U.S., right? Like, what what would happen to the U.S. system? And, like, that's a really interesting question because, I mean, there's a lot of acreage. Let's just imagine that you no longer are selling to China. Europe's not going to have more demand, right? Maybe Africa will, but it's, it's hard to imagine there's going to be a an organized enough government to, to go out and, and purchase Chinese-level soybeans, what do you think, maybe not talking necessarily about that specifically, but if there were some like supply thing where all of a sudden soybeans are not in rapid demand, what do you think would happen to all that land? Hmm. There's a lot of people right now that want to farm but can't get land because it's the barrier to entry is too high. And so if that lowered the barrier to entry, perhaps perhaps we would, instead of continuing the downward trend of number of farmers, maybe we'd have more. Um, a lot of it would probably go to real estate development because that's something that, I mean, groups like American Farmland Trust are fighting against that. But I don't know. I think I think there's a lot of people and, – and this it's, – it's hard for me to say because I am admittedly in somewhat of an echo chamber in agriculture. Like I try not to be, but a lot of the people I spend time with are people who like focus on soil health and who are interested in like more local food. So I'm kind of like – I tend to lean in that direction anyway. Um, but I think there's a lot of people who are, are willing to do to do more with less land, but but they, they can't quite get the land yet. 
but I think there's a lot of people that would want to farm, not large scale commodity production, but that would would want to do something something smaller scale. I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, certainly uh, there something would happen to the price of land, right? And it it wouldn't it wouldn't be the demand that you knew you could grow corn and soybeans and you just sell it. So I think you're yeah. Well, and I think the other thing too that, and this isn't it's not going to take up a lot of market share, but there's a lot of organic fraud and a lot of it is foreign, and so there's there there's a potential. I mean, if we if we could grow more domestically and if it was like if if the price is balanced out such that we could produce all of like the US does not produce all of our organic demand for corn and soybeans particularly soybeans so we import a lot of it and a lot of it becomes organic when it crosses on the, ship, the border when it crosses, yeah, yeah. Um, we're that some of that's getting worked on now but i don't know i think that could could fill some of the void there so Changing the subject, going away from agriculture, but you're a young woman in this modern age of 2021, almost 2022. What is the world of uh, dating and friends and just being out in the world like? I I feel like I, I don't know if I'm entirely qualified to answer this because I've been in such a, an odd world where I spent most of my time with 14-year-olds. <laughs> and so, I don't know, I'm like just getting back into back into the like kind of normal college student world. Um, man, I think there's, there's a lot of people I would say in college who, it, I mean, it's probably the mimetic desire again, but like they do the normal college things and like they go out and they party with their friends and you know, they, they have fun, but they, a lot of people don't actually think that's fun. And I've had a lot of conversations with my friends. They're like, yeah, like maybe we'd go out once a week and that would be fun, but we don't go, we don't want to go out four times a week. But everyone else, like everyone, everyone is propping up the idea that that's the fun thing to do. And like, nobody wants to admit like, actually, this isn't fun. And so it's, it's been interesting to get somewhat back into that world, I guess, and to see. And I don't know, as far as the the dating world goes, I don't know. I don't really pay that much attention to what like everyone else is doing. I kind of just do what I want to do. And I don't know, I wasn't planning on, on dating anyone anytime soon. I was in a relationship for, for some of this year and then. Um, that ended on good terms, just didn't want to go the same direction in life. Um, but then like a couple of days after convention, I met somebody and now I'm dating someone now and like, it's really, really meaningful. And I think, I think there's a lot, a lot of things about the world that not necessarily that I didn't value at all, but I didn't value as much as now I'm realizing perhaps I do. That was vague. What do you mean? <laughs> I guess, so I've, I've tended to be the kind of person that's like a career, like I just want a successful career. And this is an interesting place where I think I've, I've wanted to be different from my family just to be different from my family, not because I actually want it. Um, and so, you know, and, and I've also been in a place where like a lot of, a lot of people who have been in the positions that I've been in with FFA, like tend to go on this just like career trajectory, like, and that's valuable. And I still want that, but I think I'm realizing that there there is something really, really meaningful about a relationship and having a family that I, like, I've never really thought about it like this before until I met this person. Well, I, um, I know that in my experience, right, when I finished college, I went straight on to working on a ship and then I was working on a house and then I was in Africa. And so I just wasn't around children. And so, you know, like I had been, I had grown up around them, but it was, you know, all the way through my twenties into my thirties, 
I, I, I literally had no one that I knew that was having kids except for, you know, like my sister would, right? But your nephew's a different thing than everyone you're surrounded by. And it's just a, once you are around kids, all of a sudden there's like a, a different calculation that goes on in your brain that I think for a lot of modern anywhere kids, which is what I was, you just don't even, family doesn't even register. That's like something that adults do that are far away from you. You just don't even consider it. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's as much that for me, but I think it's that I've convinced myself that because like all my family, I mean, all my siblings got married relatively young and three of the four now have several children. Um, and that was something that was valued. And, and I love my nieces and nephews, but I've never really been like the yay babies. I want to hang out with them all the time kind of person. Um, but but yeah, I think it was like I had this this idea that I wanted to be different and 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 I wanted to be I wanted to be kind of like the rest of the world was and the rest of the world said like you can do that when women, you're 35 you do, yeah you can, yeah be independent um and and like I, I still don't know exactly what I want with my life and and I still I like I see a lot of fulfillment in a meaningful career wherever that is probably not the corporate world um but but I think maybe there's there's a better balance there that that perhaps I have always wanted, but I didn't want to admit to myself that I wanted. And also I think some of it goes back to the idea that I really, I really don't like not being in control of things. And so like a meaningful career, like I can't entirely control that, but I can pretty much control. Like I have a lot more agency over that. Oh, than, say than more th- about this. Cause I think this is going to be the recording that you're going to come back to in 10 years <laughs> and be like, Oh, that little girl sitting up there in the in the stadium, right? Like, what what yeah. do you mean? What does it mean to have a meaningful career? Just doing work that, like, create that that makes me want to do more of it. Okay. And that's what I found with my internship last summer with an ag startup in Iowa. Um, it was just like it was it was fast paced, but it wasn't toxically competitive. Like, it was very collaborative, and I was just, like, constantly learning things. Like, I'm super curious. I just love learning things. Um, And so doing work where, like, my job is just to learn things and to, like, create resources for farmers and stuff like that was just, like, really meaningful. And I was in a place where, like, part of the purpose of that company was to help farmers. And, like, I grew up with farmers. I love farmers. I love farming. Um, So, like, that was meaningful. And I think – and I don't – when I say meaningful career, I don't mean, like, I'm going to go change the world. Like, I have no aspirations of changing the world. Like, I want to do something meaningful – for a small group of people and if i can scale that up neat if i can't one person is meaningful so if i can do something meaningful for one person then that's meaningful and so when you talk about not wanting a corporate america kind of job what does that mean to you what what is corporate america i think the the things about what what i understand to be most corporate careers that that frustrate me is that it feels like there's a lot of wasted time doing things that don't need to be done that's like probably doing homework. right yeah there's um <laughs> never all. that's a pretty good point i don't think you're going to yeah, be disappointed just, with that in 10 years well and even so like right now i'm i have a couple internship offers that i'm working through and and i i want some corporate experience certainly but i'm still trying to find the positions in the corporate world that aren't going to feel like they're in the corporate world so like my my preferred offers right now are ones that like they haven't had an intern in this role before in this department before, but they have an extra project and they want to help on it. So that's my way to be like, this is going to kind of feel like a startup. Um, but several of them, like the the decision maker has told me, like, I want you to be my intern, but I have to work through HR and we have to 
do everything the way that you have to do it because it's a corporation. Whereas when I worked for the startup, like the decision maker met me at a conference and he said, hey, I want you to work for me. And then I just went to work for him and there was no HR to deal with. So just like little things like that, just like I just I want things to be more efficient. And I, and I don't see a lot of and it's weird because it's, it's almost a paradox because like corporations are in a lot of ways more efficient. Like, yeah, their economies of scale. Yeah. But, but things like that, just wasted time. I just, I can't, I can't deal with it. It's that. interesting, right? Because so I was in corporate America for five years and then um, I'm on the board of directors for this community bank. You know, my, one of my best friends is the, is the president of the bank. And by being so close to that, all of a sudden I start to realize like, oh, there's a reason they do everything through HR, right? And like, it's one of those things where I am like, I, you know, I hate bureaucracy. I hate waiting in line. I, you know, I get bored easily. So, but like, uh, you watch what happens when you don't do things the corporate America way and you're like, oh God, the problems are 10,000 times larger. But I'm with you, right? Like, it's like, I want to have the good things of not having all of those things, but just not the bad things. Yeah. Well, and I think that's part of it is that I don't, I don't have anything morally against like careers in the corporate world. I just don't think they're for me. Like people need to do those jobs. And yeah, like there's, there's, I'm going back to the tradition and change thing. Like there's a reason that things are the way that they are. Like (laughs) I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, corporation, like, cause like corporations wouldn't be successful if it didn't work. But I just don't think that is the place that I want to be. I don't think, but I don't know. Like I'm. So what sort of work, if somebody was listening to this and they had the the non-HR, non-corporate world, but they, the type of work that you would be skipping to work to come in and do, is it sales? Is it marketing? Is it, or you want to do construction? You want to be out there with a welding torch? What do you want? <laughs> Not quite. I, I do enjoy physical labor. I, I miss throwing hay bales on the farm now and then. Um, no, I don't know. And this is another thing. I still, that's one of my goals for the spring semester is to figure out a little bit more of what I want to do. But I'm really fascinated by economics and just how, like, I think that's, like, if you want to leverage anything, especially in agriculture, but I mean, anywhere, like, money is, like, the most reliable thing to leverage, I think. Like, you can't you can't count on convincing someone emotionally that they should do something, but if there's money to back it up, usually that works not always but usually um and some people will say like oh this is terrible like why are people so motivated by money but like i like to think about what i can do based on how the world is not how i wish it was so i i see econ as a as a good way to to positively influence the world and i want i want to work in agriculture and ideally closer to the farmer and to to the production side um and so i i can't say exactly what exactly what work I want to do but I can say that like the the problem that I would like to help solve is to help bring more economic freedom to farmers so they don't feel like they have to just grow the same crops that everyone else is growing um and and I want to bring I and I think these things are all connected so then I I want consumers to be closer to their food because in ag we talk so much about the producer to consumer disconnect whatever and I'm so tired of talking about that um I guess farmers are like tell our story more and it's like well we're telling our story to each other and that's not helpful and consumer they don't really they don't care about that as much as we think that they do but I think if we could shorten the supply chain and shorten the steps then they might care more about it and then if we get higher quality food to people if it could be closer to them then they would understand it more um and we and farmers would understand the consumer more because that's the other thing that takes me off as we say like you know, farmers, we have to educate the consumer. And it's like, have you ever thought about educating yourself as a farmer about the consumer? Like, it's not like we, the farmers, the enlightened ones and the idiot consumers. Like, no, like 
everybody has something that they know a lot about and farmers happen to know a lot about farming and consumers happen to not know a lot about farming, but that doesn't mean that they're dumb. They just, anyway. Um, so, so like somewhere in this, and like, I think there's, there's so many rural communities that like, because agriculture has gone this really efficient direction, like rural communities are struggling. So if we could just like decentralize some of agriculture, not all of it, I'm not, I don't want to tear down the system because there's so much that we have gained from it. But I think, I think there's a way that we could find more economic for freedom, freedom for farmers and, and bring better quality food to our consumers and, and shorten the supply chain in such a way that like everyone wins more. I mean, this goes right back to your uh, idea about complexity and how, you know, the more you value it, the more you can see opportunities. Miriam Hoffman, this has been a wonderful conversation. Nothing would delight me more than to see you be successful in whatever career you want. And uh, I'm, I'm just really glad you're a part of the network. You've um, invited me to come see your speech and, uh, and you came on the podcast today. Been, it's been meaningful to be here. This was like, I, I never set a goal to be a national FFA officer, but I did set a goal to be on the Vance Crow podcast. So hey, thank you. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Miriam. <laughs>